Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and this week we're bringing back a friend of the podcast for a second conversation. Simon Eldridge first joined us back in episode 182, when he joined his colleague Anthea Simmons, and they spoke eloquently, at depth and in detail, about the strategies of the South Devon Primary Group, which are aimed at raising one progressive candidate in each borderline constituency in the UK, so that the hard right doesn't cut through the middle on a minority of the votes because the anti-Tory vote has been split yet again. They've identified 58 constituencies around the country. Some of them already have primary groups working in them. If you live in one, and you don't, there will be a list in the show notes. Get cracking. So, getting progressive politicians into power is the primary aim of the South Devon Primary Group. But they also want to make sure the candidates who become MPs understand the nature of the climate and ecological emergency and what will be needed to help to address it. So they want to have people elected who are prepared to act as independent-minded individuals, not just lobby fodder. Which is laudable and wonderful and I am really inspired by what they're doing. It was a fun and sparky conversation. And yet, it seemed to me at the time that we could have delved a lot more deeply into Simon's broader work, finding politically viable ways to address the climate and ecological emergency. Particularly his work with a group called Zero Hour, which campaigns for the Climate and Ecology Bill and has produced a number of detailed and fascinating reports, including one about the ambition gap that we have as we head for net zero, and another, more recent, entitled Creating a Nature-Rich UK. And all of this, so we came back for another conversation. Because apart from anything else, it's so enlivening to talk with someone else who spends their entire life thinking about these things. And if I can't have fun on the podcast, frankly, what's the point? So I did have fun. I am well aware that many of you listening are not in the UK and that politics is a really siloed space. We all have our own rules to work within and our own levels of bureaucracy and kleptocracy masquerading as democracy to try to change. That being the case, we did speak a lot about UK bills and politics and politicians and the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But nonetheless, I hope that some of the ideas we explore, particularly the bigger ones of global regenerative power systems and the routes to net zero and nature-based solutions, strike home far outside the boundaries of this island because they matter everywhere. The climate and ecological emergency is global. So here we go. And yes, I do still have COVID, so I apologise in advance for the state of my voice. All that being said, people of the podcast, 
please welcome Simon Eldridge, Ozero Hour, and the South Devon Primary. Simon, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a delight to be talking to you once again. We are on the back edge of Storm Babette. I don't know how to pronounce it because I've been in bed for a couple of weeks, so I haven't been listening to the news. But how are you, wherever you are? Are you are you flooded? Likely to flood? Well, hi, Mando, and thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. Um, no, we're not flooded at the moment. Um, but, you know, one thing we can be sure of, all the science tells us that we are far more likely to be and flooded in a more severe way at some point in the near future, particularly with El Nino brewing up. Uh, which hasn't really affected us yet and will be mm-hmm. doing so from around late, late sort of autumn through into next year. Oh, joy. Okay, I, I had confidently assumed that this was part of the El Nino, so this is just the beginning. I noticed that uh, there was a lovely place in Scotland where they threw out the storm barriers that they'd carefully created in 2016 that were going to be absolutely fine for everything that was likely to happen in the next 200 years. And, and we're not even close to being enough to stop the storm surge. So before we get all into that, let's take a step back and look at South Devon Primary and what you've been doing with that. Because the last time you came on, you were talking about your ideas for how to transform the nature of politics in the UK, but I think it could be a model for politics around the world. And since then, a number of by-elections have happened and politics in the UK has fallen even further into total disarray. What's happening with South Devon Primary? Just give us the edited highlights of that. Sure. So here in the UK, like uh, other countries, uh, including America, Australia um, and Belarus in Europe, we have this old uh, electoral system called First Past the Post, where whichever party has the most votes wins. And so you get you, you have governments elected on the minority of the vote and given all the power. Now, that voting system worked okay when there were only two parties going a long way back. Now there are lots of parties. And just by chance, there are more parties on the in the centre and left. You know, so here are the Greens, Lib Dems and Labour. Um, and, and so the vote is split between those parties. On the other side, you have the Conservatives spanning a very wide range of views, but holding together in one big tent, which includes some complete lunatics on, on one end, and then some other lunatics. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, lunacy party. Yeah, it just gives them an inbuilt advantage, which is very unfair. It means that the votes of many people are wasted uh, when they go to the poll. So what we're doing is we're running a primary contest between the three progressive parties, Labour, Lib Dem and Green, and allowing voters to choose one candidate to unite behind. And people try and do this anyway at election time. They try and guess which one everyone else is voting for. So, yeah. And I've been around campaigning for all of those three parties, whichever one I thought was the one with the most chance. And the thing people always ask on the doorstep is, which is the one to back? Which is the one to defeat the Tories and to stand up for us, not the polluters? Uh, and the big business. And and so most people don't mind that much which they vote for. They just want to know which one everyone else is voting for. And so this process is designed to solve that. And we're going out every week on to high streets around the constituency, chatting with lots of people and there's so much enthusiasm for this. We're, we're going, we're, we, we now have about 1,200 people signed up, including many who've offered um, assistance, you know, about, about, 30%, 40% offer to help and 10% say, I definitely want to be involved. And, we, and people are going out 
leafleting every house, talking to their friends, hosting drinks parties. And so, you know, it's, there's a real enthusiasm that, as, as one lady said to me uh, on Saturday, who, who we interviewed for a film that we're putting out, um, that for the first time here, well, she'll have a chance for a vote to be counted, mm. not this assumption that the Conservatives will just win due to this ridiculous sort of advantage they get under first past the post. So, yeah, we're motoring forwards. Yay. And, and I should, sorry, I should just say that we've, we're also expanding nationally and we've, we've analysed all the constituencies in England and Wales and determined that there are 58 constituencies suitable to run a primary where the Conservatives are otherwise very likely to win. But the majority of the people don't want the Conservatives there, but they, their votes are fragmented. So we've also streamlined and sort of systemised our process for rolling out these primaries. So we, we set up groups with uh, a website and uh, adapted graphics, uh, a contact management system, and then we teach them what to do and we get them up and running fast. And we, we have a few about to launch. So we, you know, we want to do our bit to make sure that MPs aren't elected on a minority of the vote when you know the vast majority of people don't want them in power, and they're they're driving our country into the ground. You know, benefiting only the very wealthy few and the polluters, and we're fed up of it, and we're fighting back. Yay! Which sounds immensely good. It seems to me, however, that not wanting the polluters and big business in charge is is still a kind of a hopeful thing in that I look at both the two big parties on the left. And as far as I can tell, they are wholly owned by business and the polluters. It's just the rhetoric is slightly different. And certainly if we look at other countries, the US, it's really hard to slide a credit card between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of their commitment to the old order and business as usual. And the rhetoric is different. And, and clearly, the impact on people socially and culturally is very different, depending whether you have right or left. I'm not trying to pretend that there is no difference. But in terms of our impact at a planetary level, the Labour Party is as wholly owned by the fossil fuel industry as the Tories are. I, I struggle to imagine them doing anything distinctly different. Is it your belief that they will do different things? And if so, please tell me why. Okay, so there are a couple of things to say about that. Firstly, I, I don't think they are anywhere near as wholly owned. I, I would characterise those parties on the left as generally trying to do the right thing for the majority of people and very often failing. You know, for one reason or another, they're, they're operating in a crappy system with a very biased media and they often play to that media. The Conservatives really are in a class of their own with this. But I do agree with you that uh, you know, th their instincts will be to go nowhere near far enough. You and I both agree we need transformative change to uh, to secure a livable future uh, for humanity. Um, but this is where the primary does something a little bit different. It, it's, it's not just a question of selecting one candidate to get behind and then let them go off uh, to, uh, to Westminster and vote along with their party. We're going to be running these um, seven town halls in our constituency, and there'll be something similar in other constituencies, where people get to ask questions of the candidates in a live streamed event. 
um, we record the answers. So we, we know because people really care about it that climate change will be really high up on the list of the questions asked, and people will want to know that their candidate, do, you know, do you back the climate and ecology bill? And I think we'll hopefully we'll come to talk to this about this in a minute because it, this is the way to drive transformative change. And candidates, you know, if they want to reach out, uh, you know, for example, if the Labour or Lib Dem candidates want to win the support of Green voters, you know, they're going to have to pledge to support that. Now, I think the most we can do here in a constituency is send an MP to Westminster who comes with those added promises that they're not just a, a you know, say a Labour or Lib Dem MP, they're a Labour or Lib Dem MP who's made commitments on camera to people considering voting for them. And we think that's about as powerful a control as we can exert over, over these MPs, getting them to work for us not just sort of trotting along and voting with the whips. You know, we don't, I don't like the whip system. You know, it's the means by which um, uh, uh, polluters apply control over MPs. You know, we've read about that in Rory Stewart's um, brilliant book recently. It's, it's rotten, isn't it? You know, and so, and people are fed up. They, they want a promise from a, an MP and then we want to send them to Westminster to go and carry that out. And yeah, they can be with a party, following a party, but there's a few things that we want them to commit to. And we don't think that's at odds with the um, strategy of any of the main parties because there are MPs who already support the Climate and Ecology Bill from all the main parties. So it's, it's fine for candidates to support that. And we want to get as many candidates supporting uh, the Climate and Ecology Bill as possible and then get, elect, get them elected and get them in, into Westminster. And if we, if we can do that, um, you know, together with all these other campaigns like Stop the Vote, uh, Kel Vorderman's brilliant campaign, then, then we, can, you know, we can wrestle control back from these polluters and get them to implement this transformative legislation to drive change. OK, I, I look forward to watching this happen. <laughs> so, yes. You've got, you've, got to, you've got to have some ambition, haven't you? You know, we, oh yeah, of course, it's a long shot, all, all of this, you know, but what's the alternative? It's worth a try. Got to go for it, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's better than sitting back and watching them destroy everything for the fun of it, because they can. Um, okay, so you talked about the Climate and Ecology Bill. Let's see how much we can expand this beyond the UK, because over half of our listeners are, are not UK-based. So... My assumption is that almost everywhere in the world, at the moment, the fossil fuel companies own whoever is in power. Certainly they do in the UK and the US. I read the other day that the return on lobbying in the US is $222 per dollar spent on basically bribing the people in, in power, which is an extraordinary return. There isn't a company in the world that wouldn't spend whatever it takes to get that kind of return back. It, you know, you don't need to do anything else. You don't even need to sell any widgets for that to be exactly what you need them to do. And I'm sure it's the same in the UK. There's Nobody is suggesting that our system currently elevates the brightest and the best to help with the governance of our nation in a time of absolute meta-crisis. So what can the rest of us do working from the grassroots to make a difference on the understanding that at the moment, until we get a general election, there's very little that we can do other than what you're doing to begin to get the right people into the Houses of Parliament. But in the meantime, as far as I understand it, you guys are working really hard around other places and other ways of achieving change in spite of the lobbying. 
Tell us about that. Well, I would say, first of all, talk about it. You know, it's no good waiting till an election and then trying to shift things around. Democracy has to happen all the time. And we're finding it incredibly energising going out on the street with our democracy meter, our board of questions about how the government's doing. People really engage with it and it gets them thinking about um, issues. You know, we have a lot of people who come along and say, well, I'm not really, don't really know about politics. I'm not really into politics. And we say, well, politics is being done to you. Yeah. You know, we, we start we start talking about it. And then, you know, we'd so many go away then thinking, oh, actually, yeah, I do. I do know about it. I do care. I do need to engage if I if I want a future for my children. And so that conversation has to start now. And that includes persuading people to get registered. But, you know, you do that by giving them hope, hope that actually their vote might count. And, and so that's why we're creating this sort of sticking plaster around our broken system, which is really hopefully temporary until we get proportional representation. Um, but in, in terms of the global picture, and I think there were some lessons in the Climate and Ecology Bill, the UK, this draft piece of UK legislation that could be replicated elsewhere, because it's a very clever piece of legislation. It doesn't set out a whole list of measures that need implementing. It it sets out the the sort of broad framework that that um, uh, in terms of emissions reduction and uh, restoring nature that governments must adhere to. So it, it's very much outcome focused, you know, so it's quite easy thing to sign up to, you know, do you agree with trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees to avoid, you know, calamitous situation and, and food shortages and fires and people dying? Do you agree with that? Do you agree with restoring our horribly depleted nature? And, you know, England's the seventh most nature depleted country in the world. Can you say a bit more about that? Tell us why and how you know this? Uh, well, okay, so that's a uh, comes out of a study by the RSPB and the Natural History Museum, and all the UK home nations are in the bottom twelve. England's the worst, the seventh, and and it really is because we were the first into the industrial revolution. You know, we've it chopped all our trees down. Um, we've we've sort of very heavily sort of intensively farmed with a very strong skew towards livestock and ultra-processed foods, which are, you know, in, in incredibly damaging um, for, for nature at that level. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who'd say you can't eat any meat, but, you know, if we eat less meat, we can free up a huge amount of land. And, and there's some really positive, there's a really positive story around what that will free up in terms of nature-based solutions, which maybe we can come to in a minute. Definitely. But, but so in, in terms of getting this bill passed, it's quite, it, it shouldn't be difficult for a politician to say, actually, yeah, I do agree with trying to create a livable future. And so you, you sign up and you agree with it at this overall level. And then once you put that framework in, it ensures, it's got a self-correcting mechanism. It, it ensures that the, the plans that the government puts in place are consistent with reducing emissions at, in order to limit warming to 1.5. Now, I know we're near to 1.5. We're going to breach it this year almost certainly. Um, we're probably going to hit it in the, in the 20, early 2030s or, or sooner. Um, but the, that doesn't mean that UK can't reduce its emissions consistent with uh, its share of the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. We should be doing that. We can do it and it will create a better future. So, so the power of this is you, you get the... Um, you get politicians to sign up to it and implement it, and and then it, and then you know it, it, it's very difficult for um, it to be undone at that stage. So 
I suppose what I'm trying to say is if it had a whole list of measures to implement, we, everyone would get bogged down in arguing about it forever. So you agree with the overall principle and then the bill launches this process of devising a strategy which involves consulting with the public via citizens' assemblies, which is which is key. You know, we need to win over hearts and minds. You know, there's been so much disinformation that we're not going to be able to move forward if a significant portion of the population still doesn't even understand that there's a crisis or that we're threatened. So the bill will 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 push that forward. That's a really important part of it. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, let's... I just want to leap in and take us back a step because you said we're going to breach 1.5 this year. And I have been reading this, but I would really like you to unpick a little bit of that. Let's have a look at why 1.5 was this totemic level anyway. And then it seems that it was one of those things, everybody kept saying 1.5 is still alive after COP26. And then the people I was listening to elsewhere were going, no, it definitely isn't. And it's beginning to sound like they were right. So where are we? Why does it matter? And where does the current state of the world put us in terms of the climate emergency? So originally, I believe that we were, the IPCC was, that's the international intergovernmental body on climate change, was talking about limiting warming to to two degrees. And then they brought out this landmark report in 2019, looking at the consequences of exceeding 1.5 degrees, which are really frightening. And and the uh, impacts are perhaps more uh, alarming than had initially been thought. Uh, and, and so there was general agreement that we ought to be trying to live warming to 1.5. I mean, that's still too high. You know, where we are now is creating untold misery and suffering and financial loss all over the world. And where are we now in terms of that metric compared to 1.5 or 2? Well, people say we're on 1.2 degrees, 1.3 degrees, but you imagine this jagged line going up and down and up and down, but broadly moving up. So it's difficult to say in any one year exactly where you are. But the, 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 most, the warmest year so far on record is 2016. And since then, uh, it, you know, there's been, in, in this kind of messy process due to natural um, fluctuations, the temperatures have plateaued a little bit, but they haven't really plateaued. Denialists will say, look, it's climate change has stopped, but it's just ridiculous. You know, that, that you know. You'd have to explain why, and there isn't a reason why, so yes. I think it's super complicated, and the modelling, you know, can, that's not my field, so I won't get into it. But So we're due this sort of correction back to trend. Um, You know, we've had this uh, thing called the La Nina. You might have heard of El Nino, but La Nina is the opposite effect in the Pacific, where effectively, without going into all the details, heat is stored, and we've had that for three years, and huge amounts of heat have been stored into the ocean rather than gone into the atmosphere. And that's all built up like a big heat battery. And what El Nino is doing is now releasing that heat, that stored right. heat. Right. And so as well as a catch up back to the trend line where, you know, we should, you know, naturally come back after, you know, various other things have been happening. El Nino is going to boost us above that trend line in, right. in all probability. Right. So we're going to get a little flavor of what, life is going to be like uh, in, say, 2030. Um, and 
down in sort of South America, I think they're probably getting those effects now. It takes a little longer for it to spiral up to the UK, spiral up here. And it can create all sorts of chaos. It can even create really cold winters because it messes up with the polar vortex and allows Arctic air to spill out. So just expect kind of chaos because mm. there's more energy in the system. And so more intense rain, more intense storms, droughts, that sort of thing. And this is taking us off on a side tangent, but I genuinely don't know the answer. I've been reading papers suggesting that the Amok, basically the Gulf Stream, is is likely to switch off. At which point, as far as I can tell, we are at the same, Glasgow is at the same latitude as Moscow, London's at the same latitude as Kiev. It is the Gulf Stream that keeps us relatively temperate and has done for all of human history in the UK. We're getting a little bit parochial here, but the switching off the Gulf Stream will have planet-wide effects do you, with your understanding, which is deeper than mine, think that this is a likely thing within our lifetimes? I, I'm not an expert on that. I, I've also read, and I've read that it's slowed 15% since maybe measurements were begun. I'm not 100% about that. I think the reports I've read talk about the possibility of, of it going through an abrupt shift. But I think the, there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty about exactly when that might happen there are these smaller risks of these really high impact things which make it all the more lunatic that we're that we're not engaging in emergency emissions reductions and and i think you also that probably feeds into another thing you asked is that you know can you know is is it are we too late for 1.5 now physically if you are if you ask a climate physicist no absolutely not and i and i've worked with one quite closely on on some reports for zero hour no absolutely not but if we wanted to keep warming to 1.5 we'd have to go on to a serious emergency footing and you're talking about you know having to curtail transport and you know you know risking turning the lights out that's how we've left it so late but, you know the thing we need to understand is that there's there's population going growth going on in continents like africa that's still sort of locked in because it's a very young population and their emissions are it's unavoidable that they're going to grow, uh, you know, over the near term before they come down. Now, we, we need to transfer wealth to them to help them bring those emissions down sooner. And there's there's kind of, you know, self-interest in that for us. But, of course, our short-sighted politicians don't see that. So, you know, they carry on building coal power plants. You know, we should be helping them transition to renewals, renewables really quickly. But, but in this country, we can cut emissions faster because we're wealthy enough. And study after study shows that you know a 100% renewables based power system is possible now and not only that it will save on, according to one landmark study and this is a global study um, uh, carried out at Stanford University in America it will save 63% on energy costs and and they, and they concluded it would pay back in 7 years so we we've got even if it's 15 years even if it's 25 years yeah. What the thing that we need to do to maintain a livable future actually is going to give massive benefits to us. So it's it's even more doubly dumb that, that governments are holding on and protecting um, fossil fuels, which you know, I mean, in the UK it doesn't benefit us as a country at all. We we take hardly any tax from these international companies who extract our our reserves. You know, whereas if we put that money into renewables and restoring nature, there'd be so much more of that money would flow into the local economy and help create jobs and prosperity. So, in t so is it likely we can limit warming to 1.5? No, I think not. But you know, the increments are 
you know, you, you then go to 1.6, you don't go to two, you go to 1.6, you know, that's still quite a lot more CO2. So we, you know, should we change the targets? I don't think so. I think we keep 1.5, you know, if you're running a business and you keep moving the target every time things get tough and then people will stop trusting that the targets actually mean anything. So it's too soon to start adjusting it now, I think. Okay. There is so much in this that I want to unpick that's probably beyond the scope of today's podcast because it seems to me so much of this comes down to the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. We could change our story about money tomorrow. Money is an agreement we make with people. Dollars are worth what we say they're worth and we could transfer as much as we wanted to the Global South to help them to work out what it is that they want because I don't think anybody is pretending that Western lifestyle is fun for anyone with the possible exception of Elon Musk. And even then, I don't think he's enjoying the fact that he's one of the richest people on the planet. So helping them, helping people worldwide to understand what a, an actual thriving lifestyle feels like seems to me one of the absolute priorities. And nobody is taking that as a, as a policy measure. It's, everything is narrowed down to what the old paradigm told us that we wanted. And yes, clearly, people in the global north use massively more power than people in the political global south. How do we create the narratives that let ordinary people who are struggling to pay their mortgages and struggling to heat their homes and struggling to eat, how do we get them to care about something other than those struggles? There's, there's a meme going around on Facebook at the moment where a couple of penguins are standing on a very, very small bit of ice, staring at a woman with a shopping trolley and her bill going, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't think the cost of living is your real crisis at the moment. And clearly that is true. But equally, we live in a world that is designed to keep people stressed and not thinking. Until we change the design of that, I don't see a way forward and I don't see that our current system is even beginning to think about how to change the design. How do you see, you spoke about nature-based solutions and things changing, how do you see things changing such that we're not just going to race for two because it's there? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question, isn't it? And, and I, get, I think you get into the fact here that it, it's insane that we are still continuing on as if we can keep growing globally and grow the use of all our resources, resource use. Um, you know, uh, at the typical global growth rates, we're doubling the use of resources every 20 years, which is madness. We've already breached um, safe boundaries in, in, in seven or six or seven of Earth's nine uh, critical systems uh, due to um, you know, things like resource use and chemical um, pollution. And so we, we can't carry on doing that. But in terms of how we get that changed, the very first thing should be for politicians to actually be honest with people. You know, I often think it's not surprising that so many, there are so many deniers out there because they're just not hearing anything from the politicians. I mean, my MP, I went through his Facebook uh, post and the Twitter posts. He's not mentioned climate change for a year, my Conservative MP. But they I don't get it. I mean, they're not in, they weren't elected because they got climate change. They were elected because they didn't. That, you know, the, the system yeah. elevates to the top the people who will maintain the system. Yeah. I, and I love the idea of your primaries, and I sincerely hope that when they get to Westminster, they'll remember. But I also know that one of the reasons all of the MPs were called back 
during COVID was because they were turning into real human beings when they were at home. And Westminster is designed to turn ordinary people into psychopaths. And however lovely they are when they're in their constituencies facing people that they want to vote for them, as soon as they get power, they just, they stop thinking about things like this. And they're surrounded by other people who support the narrative that growth is where, what we're here for. I, I really struggle to see Keir Starmer having the emotional intelligence to step beyond that. Leaving aside my loathing of Starmer for everything that he's done. He's just not, he's an apparatchik. He's there to maintain the system. The system is never going to let people arise who aren't there to maintain the system. How can we at the grassroots level make enough of a difference when everybody is as stressed as they are? I, I don't see politicians learning to talk about climate change. They, they wouldn't be there if they could. This is where I see, the again, the Climate and Ecology Bill as a key. It, it, everything I'm doing now uh, and the inspiration for the primary was designed to get enough politicians into Westminster to get this bill passed. And it, it's not a faint hope, it's a real possibility, but there are 170 parliamentarians already backing it. So it's, it's not it's not rad Out of 650? Uh, well, I think that includes um, some, some lords as well. So there's okay. probably 150 or something, I'm not sure. But we're, the thing that I think is gonna change things in all of this is at some point, people are gonna get frightened and they're gonna wake up and take their head out of their daily lives because something dramatic happens. Now, eventually, that, of course, that will happen. Because, you know, if you roll forward to the, the mid-30s, we're going to have uh, huge extreme heat incidents where the wet bulb temperature goes above the uh, level that people can survive at. And you'll, you know, you'll have huge numbers of people dying. Now, I really hope that we that something happens before then that isn't as bad as that that causes people to wake up. And I think El Nino and the chaos that that's going to bring over the next 12 months is the essentially the catalyst that is going to lead to change. Now, the C, the Climate and Ecology Bill then is there. So I, I liken it a bit like um, we had this disastrous uh, Prime Minister momentarily in Britain, Liz Truss, and she, um, uh, her appalling Chancellor, implemented this uh, insane budget, giving these unfunded tax cuts to the wealthy. And it was so insane that it, it started crashing the economy. And in order to uh, kind of settle the markets, the government had to, was forced to put in something a little bit, just a little bit more reasonable. Now, in this case, we're going to have we're going to have panic and potentially financial um, sort of market issues once it becomes clear that, you know, we're going to be seeing regular and increasingly disruptive and damaging climate impacts. And at that point, people are going to be looking for something to stabilise the situation. Now, that's where a piece of legislation like this comes in. And, and just briefly, just to go back, because I, I think it's really important, I talked about making this transition to 100% renewables, and you've got a lot of stuff that has, has to go on within that. You know, for example, to convert homes to heat pumps, then older houses like mine that are made from stone need to be insulated often, uh, not always. Um, and, and that can be really expensive. And, and so the government plays this really deceitful game saying, oh, we're not going to force people to pay for insulation. Well, that's not how it should work. The government should be offering grants to pay for this for people because it actually offers a massive financial payback to our country. It releases us from dependence on oil dictators and reduces all the oil infrastructure we have to build. It also reduces the 
amount by which we have to scale up our grid to um, provide electricity for everything if we if we can insulate and use less. So it, this isn't for individuals to pay for. It's for the nation to pay for. You know, if we were at war, you wouldn't ask your individuals to pay for missiles, would you? You know, the, the government would step up and do it. And we are threatened in the same way. And, um, and there's plenty of money there. Since around 2010, the wealthiest 10 families in the UK, have their wealth's gone from around 50 billion to around 150 billion. Wow. Uh, and, and the UK... Uh, controls around 50% of the world's tax havens. You know, why, why do people put money in the tax havens? Just to avoid paying tax. I mean, you know, and it's wealthy people. This is an emergency. You know, we should go after that. We should do a one-off uh, tax at the tax havens. There's plenty of money to pay for this. And, and, and that sort of links up with re- the resource question. There are plenty of resources. We're just using loads of them for making private jets and motor cruisers and mansions and loads of and bullshit. to drop on people. And bombs, yeah, yeah, and the military emissions are huge. You know, it's ridiculous. What we need to do is like change our productive capacity, like ha- like what happened with the war. We switched everything over, and 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 just to pick up on something else you said, how do we get people to change the way they live? Well, for for a start, lots of people are so hard up they can't. You know, that that's one of the reasons they're eating like ready meals and using single use plastics and all that sort of thing. If we're going to start to live in more in harmony with nature, we can't have supermarkets full of single-use plastics. But if that happens, then people have got to change how they eat. And, and then they need more time. They need more time to buy real food and to actually cook. And that means that, um, you know, minimum wages have got to go up. You know, the whole thing is very circular. What, what it means is actually living in harmony and, and stabilizing our biosphere is going to be good for nearly everyone, apart from the really wealthy, who are just going to have to share a bit. And, it, and it, even then, it's good for them because none of them are going to benefit from biosphere collapse and having, um, you know, no one being able to afford to, to buy anything. So it's just, they, but they can't see it and they're, they're too short-sighted. They're often old men who have got a very short time horizon. So we've got to take control from them. And I know people say, well, that's never happened in history. They've always been in control. Well, the, the climate change and the nature breakdown are two things that are, they're, they're more unstoppable forces than the power of these people to hold on at some point they will lose their power what we've got to do is make sure that we we, we take hold of uh, the reins soon as soon as possible so that we've still got enough productive capacity and capability to adapt because if if we wait until say 2030 to start adapting we're going to be doing so much firefighting literally yeah. and, and sorting out floods that we won't have any productive capacity left to make the transition. And then I see things going down into some horrible freefall, you know, and there are a lot of dark paths out, out there. <laughs> okay. And let's not go down those because well, what we look at is where we get to and we don't, you know, everybody understands how bad things can be. I think, you know, you cross the handmaid's tail with the road and you'll end up being kebabbed over piles of burning tires by our bigger and nastier neighbours. And that's every time a group of permaculturalists in, certainly in this area, gets together. Way back when I first moved here in 2005, I got all excited and joined all the local groups and we'd end up around somebody's kitchen table. And and within half an hour, talk would have turned to how we're going to mine all of the bridges over the Severn to stop the hordes of Birmingham coming to take all our food. And you think if things have fallen down that badly, you know, frankly, we're all screwed anyway. So let's not go there. And one of the things I really enjoy about talking to you is that I look at the system and I think we need a totally new political system, a totally new monetary system and a new way of being. And 
it's hard to f think of the ways of inducing everybody to see that. And you live in a reality, I think, I am hearing, where money still functions, taxes are still a thing that are worth taking. I think taxes are a scam, but you know that's because I'm a modern monetary theorist. Um, not that I think that they're wrong. I just think the government doesn't need to take tax in order to spend money. The money, the government spends money into existence. That's how money arises. And they don't need the taxes in the first place. The taxes are taken to even out the, the playing field and to maintain the fiction that otherwise the government hasn't got money to spend. But what Liz Trust did was essentially take modern monetary theory and use it in a completely batshit crazy way that, that was going to, you know, hand free money to all of her friends. But she was basically implementing modern monetary theory. And one of the reasons that everybody stamps on it is that they say the market would never accept this. And I had always thought, well, what does the market not accepting it look like? And then Les Truss appeared and we go, oh, that's exactly what the market not accepting this looks like. That's really interesting. We cannot do modern monetary theory because the guys in suits who spend all their lives playing a Ponzi scheme called the market don't like it when you call them on the fact that their money is made up out of nothing. So we discovered what would happen when that happens. And what I am really interested with you, I, I want to get to zero hour and, and nature-based solutions quite quickly, but I'm really interested if your theories are all correct. And, and the big hole that I see is that everywhere around the world, when real bad climate stuff starts to happen, most people do not attribute it to climate change. You do look at the particularly in the US, which has you know a crazy political tribal system. But wildfires sweep through California and people's assessment that this is climate change falls. And they blame it on anything, including lasers from outer space, rather than accepting that this might be something over which they have personal influence. Leaving that aside, because that's, you know, that's a hole we don't need to go down. If you were put in charge of global political policy and were able to shift the narrative in the way that you want. How do you see our culture, our politics and our economics functioning in, say, 2030, in a world that is heading towards total mitigation? Wow. Um, well, I mean, I, I can see a lot of ways for it to go wrong, but I suppose, and I haven't gone into that modern monetary theory that you, you, you've spoken about, but uh, I, 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 that's interesting. I think we need for now to work with, we haven't got time to totally change everything. We've got to get on and implement solutions. And I suppose that's why I'm quite locked into the climate and ecology bill or a piece of legislation that will drive that change. And, and, I, and I do think that once it's passed and governments are then forced to talk to the population, most, you know, if you treat people like adults, most people will listen. I mean, we saw that in the pandemic. You know, what we asked people to do in the pandemic was extraordinary. And, you know, like it or not, you know, people change their behaviour. So it Very is... Very briefly. And then the kickback happened. And I am sure that if we get time, we will find out that there were a lot of Russian troll farms involved. But I have people around me who, who now deny that COVID was a thing, who are, they call the latest variant a scariant, designed by them, whoever they are, to keep us all under control. And having just lived through two weeks of basically not being able to get out of bed because <laughs> the scariant hit, 
I don't particularly want to listen to them, but they are absolutely out there with that this whole thing didn't really exist. And we're heading to a point where various of the AI people who know what they're talking about say that 2024 is, is the last date at which we can have elections where people might have any concept of anything relating to what we would normally consider to be truth. And we, we haven't even begun to look at what is AI going to do and all these things. People, people did lockdown, but I would be really surprised if we get another variant now. Would they do it again? I, I doubt it, frankly. I mean, those are, of course, big issues. But I, I think that those kind of crackpot voices do end up being amplified in, in a way on social media, don't they? Because all the people I, I see in the physical world, you know, there's very, very few that don't accept climate change is real. It's just not front of mind. They're just getting on with their lives. They sort of need, they, you know, we can't expect people to, we can't expect every individual to respond to the science and act accordingly. That's why we need leadership. That's why we, we need, you know, governments. Um, and I mean, I, Yuval Noah Harari said an interesting thing about AI and, and, and uh, you know, fake videos and that sort of thing. He said, if you, if we tell the social media bosses that they'll be put in prison if they allow fake faked videos on the platforms, they'll find a way to stop it very quickly. And I, and I left that. We, we've got to start doing these things, you know. Um, Who's going to tell I, Elon Musk that, though? You know, they, well, they now own the politicians in the US and they're all in the US. We could offer to put them in prison. They just don't come to the UK. But the EU have, have stood up to social media uh, recently and, and, and they are doing and, and But this is, this is the change that I think, yes, of course, it... We might not achieve it, but but I see the only route as putting the right politicians in in parliament and then demanding that they they act. I don't see an, another way around that. And 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 just to go back to the primary, um, I don't think I mentioned that we've got um, you know we we've got some quite key politicians in key seats that would where a primary would really work, and we don't we don't have to put up with these people. So we've got go. We've got Braverman. She's in a primary seat. So if anyone out there is in um, Ferrum and Waterlooville, we need uh, two or three people, and we will help set up the whole thing for you, and we'll guide you through it. Okay. And she could be voted out, you know. And, and we've got groups popping up. We just don't have one yet in in Braverman's constituency. We've got Keegan, the crumbling concrete lady, um, and then we've got Claire Coutinho. Now. Claire Coutinho, the new energy minister, the minister for net zero, is linked to the right-wing policy exchange. Oh, is she? Oh, these are the people who funded trust. They are beyond yeah. crazy. Yeah, uh, and who are funded by Exxon and who, yeah. who put forward the laws for cracking down on protests. So they, our energy minister is linked to them, but she's in a primary target seat. And if someone was prepared to set a primary up there, we will do everything we can to help you get going and let's get her voted out. And Badenoch as well. Okay, so so at the end of this, please send me a list of all of the possible target seats and we'll put them in the show notes. And people out there, we're now very parochially in the UK. Anyone around the world who wants to try something like this in your own country, you're going to have to work out your political legislation because they have primaries in the US, but they're not primary primaries. They're exercises in kleptocracy, but let, that's a different conversation. So Simon's going to send me a list. We'll put it up. If you're in any of these constituencies and you want help, Simon's group will help you to find ways to kick out the nastiest of the nasty. I read yesterday in The Observer that Jeremy Hunt, who 
is is actually one of the most terrifying people in Parliament because he manages to look like a human being, is not even going to stand at the next election because he thinks that his seat is likely to fall. So when someone like that isn't even safe, then yeah, we could definitely get rid of them. I just strongly suspect that three or four years from now, you and I are going to be having a similar conversation about the likes of Wes Streeting and Jess Phillips, because genuinely these people make some of the Tories who are existing in Parliament now look really left-wing. And and I do not think they get it. And I don't think that they are safe in power. But we'll find out. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, I will be very happy about being wrong. We'll have to cross so, that bridge when we come to it, won't we? <laughs> we will cross that bridge when we come to it. So in the meantime, You've been talking quite a lot about zero hour. Tell us a bit more about zero hour and then talk to us a bit about nature-based solutions and what people can be doing while we wait for the next election and try to overturn whatever's happened. But what can we be doing at a grassroots level? So zero hour is the organisation behind the Climate and Ecology Bill, which is a private member's bill put forward by Caroline Lucas, but which has support from all the parties, including some Conservative MPs. And in brief, it would uh, limit cumulative emissions from now, cumulative CO2 emissions, uh, to ensure that we don't emit more than our share for for keeping temperatures within 1.5 degrees. It's not about a net zero day. That's a real red herring. It doesn't matter massively when we reach net zero. It's the area under the line that matters. It's the total we emit from now. Um, it would also um, make it create a legally binding obligation to reverse the loss in biodiversity by 2030. It's set, to set nature on the path to recovery. Um, but, and then crucially, that we take responsibility for, for our overseas ecological and emissions footprints, which are currently ignored. And, you know, and one mm. of the reasons why the uh, UK ministers often crow about our UK emissions figures falling by, say, what was it, the latest? I think it's 48% since 1990. It's because we've offshored it all. Because <laughs> we've offshored it. That's our territorial emissions. And we don't even include aviation and shipping at the moment. We do also don't include the military. No country in the world includes their military, which given what's happening in the world, you know, the emissions of one missile it basically wipes out. We could spend the rest of our lives, you and I, living in straw bale huts, eating grass. And that one missile would take up more CO2 than you and I were ever going to take up. And, and and the figures also exclude blue carbon, which is carbon that gets released from marine, marine environments. You know, so we're, when we're driving around, you know, when, when these industrial fishing vehicles go, fishing vehicles, fishing ships, go around uh, dragging chains along the bottom, mm. ripping through those delicate ecosystems and releasing lots of carbon, that's completely ignored. As, as is burning of biomass, you know, so we've got Drax Power Station here, and here's a link to the US there, they're, they're shipping in loads of timber from uh, North American forests. Old growth forests. And, uh, yeah, yes. and from Eastern European forests, you know. Yes. And pretending that this is somehow green. It is, this is the problem, is they will weasel their way around whatever we do. Business is very, very good at continuing to exploit. Uh, yeah, if this climate and ecology bill is passed, there will be no way that they can carry on doing that and comply with the requirement to keep, you know, to limit our emissions in the way that the Climate and Ecology Bill says they will have to. And if they tried to, anyone would be able to go to a judge who would uh, be able to order the government to act. Now, at the moment, we do have legally binding legislation, but it's really loose and it's very difficult for anyone to kind of get serious action under it. The Climate and Ecology Bill would be much, much tighter. So would Drax, for instance, 
cease to exist under the Climate and Ecology Bill? Um, I, yeah, I think it would have to. Drax is the wood-fired power station. <laughs> One of the biggest coal power stations in Europe converted to burn timber, and they have plans to add this carbon capture equipment, which is totally unproven, and yes. it's estimated to cost the UK taxpayer £32 billion. Um, and, and o- Over what time frame? Oh, uh, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure. So I won't guess that. That you can look up on, um, there's an organisation called Ember, which... Um, has reported on this. So has somebody done the modelling for how to power the UK yes. in the absence yes. of these? Yes. So uh, Professor Jacobson, um, Mark Jacobson at Stanford University, uh, has led a study which I referred to before, but this is not the only study. There's There's been a meta study showing that complete unanimity from st- from all studies, all independent studies on this, and that's important because there are some studies which are funded, showing that we can get to 100% renewables. Now, people say, what about nighttime? What about these sort of windless winter days? How do we cope with that? And people others say, well, we need enormous battery capacity. Well, that's just not correct. This one study looked at three years of uh, grid data for 145 countries and weather data, and they modelled, you know, down to 30-second granularity, and they modelled, could we get to 100% renewables? And they found that by grouping countries into blocks, uh, so UK would be with Europe, and by having multiple diverse sources of renewables, which all peak and trough at different times, that lots of the natural variability is ironed out. You know, for example, solar and wind are often come at different times. But then you've got um, hydro, uh, wave, tidal, geothermal. Now, geothermal is really underrated. People don't, people tend to think geothermal only works where you've got hot rocks, and there aren't many places with that. But no, the latest te- the latest oil drilling technology, in fact, mm. is capable of extracting serviceable heat anywhere. So we could we could heat up with very very deep. Yeah, yeah, but it's doable. Shafts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, to depths that we can that are currently drilled to. So this this is where you know we. So sorry that would that can extract enough heat to heat homes, which uh, is is one of our biggest challenges. And so sorry, just to finish that story by grouping countries into blocks when it's windy in the Hebrides power will flow down through Europe when it's really sunny in the Bay of Biscay comes up the other way etc and so it, it it's doable and and it you know it's it will it will save loads of money is the infrastructure already there to transmit it around because otherwise I'm seeing an extraordinary quantity of copper being necessary to make this happen yeah so uh, the, we do have in power interconnectors already that flow electricity backs and forwards, but just not enough, and they need beefing up. So this is an example of where we need to stop using copper and other materials for, for needless luxuries and divert that all into this essential um, establishment of a, of a green grid. Now, I've spoken to some key professors in this area because there's a lot of noise about, well, isn't this it just isn't possible and, and all of them tell me, yes, it will be a challenge and it will involve having to be quite strict about not wasting those precious materials on things that we don't need. But all their work shows that it is doable, a challenge but doable. So we should be getting on with it. In what time frame? 
how how soon if we if we did pour everything into it and did tell everybody they couldn't have any copper for anything else, for instance, any of the materials required are not going to be available for anything else. What's the time frame for creating a usable, interconnected global grid? I'm not sure, to be honest, but it, it's one of those things that we should just be going at it as fast as possible. Uh, I, and I suspect it's faster than you think. I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to guess. I can't remember. Be interesting, though, for someone to do yeah. to crunch the numbers, yeah. because if politicians were presented with, OK, this will take 10 years, say, picking a number out of the sky and we need to start now. And if we do this within 10 years, we can go fossil fuel free. The ones who are owned by the fossil fuel companies would would scream and put, do everything they can to get in the way. But everybody else would be behind that. I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I don't think we're talking loads longer than that. But yeah, I won't guess. People can people can look it up. One thing I really should mention is reducing wasted energy. It's not just about shifting over. And there's right. a great organisation called CREDS, Centre for Reduction in Energy Demand. And they, uh, uh, and I know one of the professors there, uh, John Barrett, they have created this fantastic report that we're using um, very detailed modelling to show how the UK can reduce its energy use by 53%, I think it is, it's definitely over 50, without any negative impact on quality of life. We waste so much. You know, we've got the leakiest homes in Europe. Um, You know, we're allowing, the government's allowing SUV sales to soar. What absolute madness. Mm. You know, they, they use, even if they're SUV electric vehicles, you know, that's utter, it's such waste. It's not just waste of energy, it's waste of these precious resources and minerals that we need. You know, it, it's absolutely dreadful that they're allowing this. They should just ban them, you know. And um, so we can we can save all this energy and that makes the transition to 100% renewable so much easier. It lowers the hurdle. If, if we've got less you know, expansion needed in our renewable grid will get them sooner. So we need to be doing this really aggressive reduction of demand. In the days when I looked into this in detail, 30% of power loss was from the power stations to the periphery. It was it was lost in transit. And the further we send it, the more I can, don't see how the square root law does not apply to this. Yes, it would. But the way they transmit power over greater distances is with DC, not AC. Yes. So when Thomas Edison first um, yeah, he, he made this decision to go AC, but DC... But there are very few DC outlets. I, I know because I'm involved in a project in Scotland, there is a DC outlet in this one particular location in Scotland because there was a, a nuclear power station there and it went down. We don't have the DC outlets. And and yes, DC is, it falls off less, but it doesn't not fall off. We've either got to get to a point where they're going to let us put up wind turbines on the hill so that, you know, our very windy valley could actually power itself and have localised power grids, which at the moment are illegal. There's only one microgrid in the UK and it's at Dartington because they happen to get a special licence to do an experimental one. We would have to completely change the very Stalinist centralised power production model that we have in this country and beyond. Is that something that's part of the modelling? Um, yes, as far as I'm aware, they have modelled that. And DC, DC losses are very, very small. And so it, it, I think all of these large interconnectors are DC. But I'm, I'm getting a little bit out of my field here, but that, that's certainly being considered. 
Um, but I, I completely uh, resonate with what you say about local electricity generation. And I think the more you allow microgrids and community involvement in wind power, which changes everyone's view to wind, that people, you get hugely high approval ratings uh, for having wind turbines if people can share in cheap electricity or in community profits. And of course, the more you do that, the less you have to be transmitting over long distances. But I think the you know, you need that backup for when it's not windy and when it's not sunny. And that power has been able to shift around at national level. And so, yeah, these are these are big projects. But, you know, we the fossil fuel industry is immense. You know, with, you know, if you if you postulated trying to build the fossil fuel industry, you know, 50 years ago, you'd have gone, blimey, that, you know, how the hell will we ever be able to do that? So, but I, you know, so we, we are capable of, you know, these immense engineering projects but what what we what we actually should be doing is forcing the fossil, the fossil fuel companies to to use their incredible depth of technological expertise to to invest in this way much as i've sort of have uh, got such such contempt for them but they've got the they've got the logistical capabilities but at the moment and the money uh, and the money at the moment in the uk we, the government is directing fossil fuel companies towards investing in new oil and gas because if you're yeah, if you're BP or because like, that's what they want to do. Yeah, but, but I, I don't know whether you're aware, but they the, the government gives a ninety one percent tax rebate to oil and gas companies for investing in new fossil fuels, but they don't give them anything for renewables. So it, it's madness. So the new Rosebank oil field. Um, that's that's just been kind of announced and there's been a lot of you know upset about it rightly so the uk taxpayer is going to be giving in total 3.75 billion in tax relief for this including to equinor which made 62 billion in profits last year 62 billion pounds sterling so we're we're paying them to invest in oil but what we should be doing is we should be taxing them at an extremely high level for any profits that come from oil and gas to make them not want to do it and give them a big rebate for investment in renewables and in power grids, you know, direct their productive capacity, which is probably one of the fastest ways we can get change. Is that part of the bill, the climate and ecology bill, that that would happen? Or would that be an innate roll-on effect of the bill being enacted, do you think? Well, this is where if the bill had loaded in all these sort of things, it would get bogged down. You know, right. and there's there's a there's a parallel here, which is an awful parallel, really. But the Brexit vote. Look at Brexit. No one ever said what Brexit was. Right. No one got bogged down in it. It meant whatever it meant. There was no detail to yeah, to yeah. argue over because nobody offered any detail because they didn't know. Yeah, Brexit means Brexit, and it's whatever it was to each person. Right. But you know, there is a lesson in that. If you start putting out loads and loads of detail, then you just get bogged down in endless debate, and you know. Okay. And the denialists will just latch onto stuff and try and scare people, you know, unjustifiably. It's much better to say, look, do we want to achieve this outcome? Let's just sign up to that and then let's set out on the journey. Okay. All right. Which might be an interesting place to end, but I'm still very curious because you think about this very deeply. It's your whole life. And you still, as far as I can tell, exist in a world where people will be driving on roads, spending money, buying consumer goods. It's just that everything will be less carbonized. And and part of my reality is that it's not all about the carbon. In fact, quite a lot of it isn't about the carbon at all. A lot of our 
current way of being, even if we managed to decarbonize everything tomorrow, would still take us off the edge of a cliff. This is one of the reasons I'm fighting very shy of the molten thorium salt concept, because the people who are into that say it's going to solve all our energy problems tomorrow. The technology is there. We can have it up and running within five years, total decarbonization. And I am really scared of the idea that we could give everybody free energy forever and and think that we're still not going to go off the edge of the cliff. It's just a, we go over a slightly different bit of the cliff, but we're still going to go over. And so let us assume that we've managed to create a grid and we've shifted to renewals. The fossil fuel companies woke up one morning and decided they didn't want to destroy the planet and they were going to pour all their energy investment and bandwidth into making the world a better place. We're still going over the cliff. Well, I, I think maybe this neatly just hooks into the thing that we were going to try and discuss, which is nature-based solutions, because we've got to live in harmony with nature. Yes. And how does that happen in a system where people innately extract and don't understand what harmony with nature is? And, and, and this is as big a risk to human civilization as, the, as climate change. You know, it's, um, you know, we cannot, we, we're part of nature, you know, and if we destroy nature, we're going to destroy ourselves. You know, we're not going to be able to f- feed ourselves. So uh, Zero Hour brought out a new report called um, nature, A Nature Rich UK. And, uh, and I did some work on, a little bit of work on this before I, I pulled away from Zero Hour. And it, it, it's so interesting when you look at, uh, nature-based solutions like you know uh, agroforestry, planting lines of trees between crops, restoring peatlands, uh, restoring and establishing new salt marshes, uh, that that sort of thing. These ecosystems have got the power to capture huge amounts of carbon. I'm not saying that that provides us with an excuse to carry on emitting. We've got to cut emissions at emergency level now, but. We, we can also use this to mop up uh, emissions. And, but the, there's a really important key in here. And, and when you look through all the literature on nature-based solutions, so much of it assumes business as usual. So they assume that we're going to carry on eating the same amount of meat and all that ultra-processed foods and that sort of thing. And then they say, well, the, you know, the, the sort of scope for nature-based solutions isn't that great. Now, in the, in the UK's plans, the government is assuming that we're going to capture, by 2050, 58 million tonnes of carbon every year with bioenergy and carbon capture and direct air capture. Now, you know, that's probably another discussion to go into why that's just absolute nonsense. And all the science shows that, that I've seen. Go on. Tell us a little bit more about that then. Well, we've, talk, we've talked about bioenergy. So bio, bioenergy, the, the, the idea is that um, if you burn trees that have captured carbon, that's a kind of closed loop. So you capture it from the atmosphere in trees that grow and then you burn them and release it and then you capture them again with more trees. But studies show that forests take around 50 years to regrow. So we're creating this massive pulse of carbon, CO2 going into the atmosphere, just at the point when we're in danger of crossing all these dangerous tipping points, you know, like the Amazon burning and ice caps melting. And, but, but it's worse than that. You know, there's loads of carbon involved in the chopping down of the trees and the chipping and then the shipping. You know, uh, the list goes on with bioenergy and it creates loads of dangerous particle air, air pollution, which the government even mentions right in the back of their net zero strategy report. It can create really bad regional pollution. But that's in the north of England. So, they, of course, they don't really care about that. Um, 
and and then direct air capture. This is this process where you use these big giant fans to, to to suck air in and filter out those carbon dioxide molecules. And remember, there's only 420 of them per million, so you've got to sift through a lot of air. And air's mm. quite heavy. Air's about two kilograms for every meter cube. It's heavier than we think, even though we walk through it and feels weightless. Um, and and this is a really high energy process. And uh, until we get until we've got surplus green electricity, all that's going to happen is if you if you connect up direct air capture plants, is that they're going to need to be powered by burning more gas. So for as much CO2 as you remove... And the yeah, yeah, unless they've discovered perpetual motion, this is not going to work. Yeah. In the future, you know, when we've got surplus uh, renewable electricity, I think it's going to be... But Simon, why do you think Jevon's paradox does not apply to this? What, at what point are we going to have surplus green energy? People will use it. Unless we've unless we've managed to completely reconfigure human internal working, there will never be such a thing as surplus. There never has been such a thing as surplus. There never has. You're quite right. But but we do need to reserve a power in the future for direct air capture because we can use direct air capture to lower atmospheric CO2 levels to safer levels. Because we you know we'll we'll get to the point when we reach global net zero, whenever that might be, and wherever it is, climate change won't get any better. There it will stay. So, so we've got these bad effects now. Even if we slam on the brakes now, things are going to keep getting worse until we're down to zero emissions, and then they then they stay there. Why are we using mechanics though? Because my understanding of regenerative farming is that if you can begin to build a soil, soil sequesters carbon. Ages ago, uh, David Johnson at University of New Mexico said, if every farmed acre on the planet was turned over to regenerative farming and was actually building soil instead of destroying soil, we'd be at pre-industrial levels of CO2 within 10 years. And I don't know if anyone's ever looked at those numbers and recrunched them, but I do know that there are some of the very smart young men, mostly in Portugal because they've had the sense to make cryptocurrency tax-free, um, are looking at creating LLMs that are large land models that are going to map the entire planet put AI onto them and go, okay, how do we sequester the most carbon? We don't need to be using green energy to do it mechanically when we could be doing it by nature-based solutions that are intelligent farming instead of destructive fossil fuel-based industrial farming. No? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I, I got caught in a little bit of digression in saying why we shouldn't be doing DAX at the moment, but acknowledging that that's okay. a in the future. The, when you look at that 58 million tonnes that the government's banking on us removing every year from negative emissions technologies. And, th and then you look at most reports, they, they, they won't show that ne uh, nature-based solutions can remove that much because of business as usual assumptions. But when you dig around in the reports yep. and look at the actual potential, if we did eat less meat, you know, for example, following the Climate Change Committee's recommendations that we reduce meat consumption by 35% by 2050, which would free up around a quarter of agricultural land, then suddenly you can really unleash the power of nature-based solutions. Um, so you've got agroforestry, woodland, you know, planting more woodland. Sure. Pasture for life systems. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and, and so but that starts with being, if we're honest with people, and, I, you know, most people don't understand the link between meat and climate change and this, this whole complex web. But if we actually explain it to people and treat them like grown-ups and say, look, you know, if we do this, 
A, we can clean our air because uh, a major component of air pollution comes from uh, livestock farming. So we just need a bit less of it. We free up loads of land and that will Industrial be- livestock farming. This is That's a podcast true. that really believes in livestock farming. But this is the point, is it not? It's not just meat, it's industrial farming. If we pretend to people that they can have industrially farmed carrots and that will be okay, apart from the fact that nutritionally they are absent almost everything that you need. It's still industrially farmed. It's still destroying soil. It's still destroying the the microbiome. And it's still destroying the possibility of having a food web that actually is integral to the ecological web. Yes. It's not just meat. It's industrial farming that has to go. Industrial farming and ultra-processed foods and that sort of thing, which are terrible for, for food and water security. I mean, if, if we if we do if we make this change by reducing uh, ultra processed foods and eating less meat, we'll we'll create enough land to dramatically improve our food security because growing for a more plant based diet feeds a lot more people per hectare. It uses a lot less water. You know we're really food insecure in this country. I think we're the third largest net importer of food in the world, and we're right at the end of the line now, thanks to Brexit. Thanks Brexit. Mm. Yeah, we're importing stuff from Australia because that, of course, is an intelligent thing to do in the middle of a climate crisis. Insane, isn't it? You know, the beauty of nature-based solutions is that they're sort of this actual real silver bullet solution. People normally say silver bullet in a negative way, but I see them as a silver bullet. Again, emphasise not a, not a substitute for cutting emissions, but they'll help us adapt to a warming world. You know, so woodland really lowers the temperatures around us. We're going to struggle with heat waves. They absorb carbon far more cheaply than these bullshit technical solutions you know when you look at some of the costs per ton for uh, establishing new woodland and supporting farmers for agroforestry like the when you look at the scottish government's payments for farmers for agroforestry which is an easy one to look at in england it works out about that you're paying around nine to twenty pounds per ton of carbon sequestered but for direct air capture you know it's it's looking 600 or something so, you know, you look in the UK right. at, the, at the miserable payments that um, the government's offering farmers for elms, farmers who've had their household income drop, median household income has dropped to about 17,500 a year. I mean, yeah, way below the minimum wage. How they expect to make change. But then if you think that we're, we're only paying them, you know, 10, 20 quid per tonne of carbon they're sequestered with these changes we want to make, but we're paying these giant companies like BP who promised to capture this invisible gas in a way that I don't know how it's going to be possible to certify. No, Let's no, it's hand-waving magic, isn't it? And, and why don't we give that, you know, we could give, we could afford to triple the payments. If, if we cancel all these bullshit technical solutions and funnel the money instead into rural economies and help farmers farm, you know, afford the changes needed and actually have a, you know, a, a decent enough income that attract more people into farming, then we've got, this is a far better way to go about things. But we're looping around to the start. We are going to have to stop quite soon, much as I'm enjoying this conversation. We're way over time. But we're looping around to the fact that politicians are owned by the people who have the big shiny cars, who have the big shiny companies, who want you to pour money into their big shiny technological concepts. And farmers aren't any of these things. And there's a a whole political thing around the National Farmers Union being owned by the people with the big shiny tractors and the actual farmers on the ground are not represented by them at all. So... So somehow we're back to, we need to find a political system with people who actually get this, which is what you're doing. Let's park that one there because I have one more question. And this might open up into a whole other podcast that we'll do at another time. I am listening quite a lot to fascinating young men in their 20s. So these are people who grew up not just in the era of broadband, but came to adulthood when cryptocurrency was already a thing. 
And the ones I'm listening to are the ones who are really into creating a regenerative future. But the people they're listening to are the ones who consider anything to do with, and I put it in big quotes, nature, to be an aesthetic option that they could choose not to have. These are people who have raised themselves on Star Trek and computer games and novels, science fiction novels, where you left the old Earth behind and you inhabited new planets and everything is technical. Everything is 3D printed. Everything is made from, you know, you grow algae in the depths of your spaceship and then you eat it. They do not consider nature to be the natural world, the web of life. They call it nature. It's an aesthetic option that they think they could live without. And they are controlling the AI. You know, Elon Musk is is the cheerleader for this because they also have a belief system that the chances of this being based reality are so small as it can't be, that they are in fact living in a computer simulation and their job is to level up. These people are now running the world because AI. Are you talking to anyone younger than 30 who exists in that reality? Or is it the case that all of us who care about the web of life, who want to be part of it, are actually the boomers who whose day is over? Wow. Well, that's that's a scary thought. Uh, <laughs> I have, I've not spoken to these people or, or listened to them. Uh, we we are we we're really pleased at that we do have quite a few young people from eighteen up who've been coming out and helping us with South Devon Primary, standing at our democracy meeting and talking to people. It's fantastic, and we're capturing them. Yeah, they're really articulate. Um, ah, because it's a big question that you just raised, but I think it goes back to education and schools, doesn't it? And connecting our children. We're not going to reach the ones who are already out there creating the AI. No, they, they left no. school a long time ago. Well, I, I think that there are a lot more people who value nature. Look at the look at how much emotion has been provoked by the government allowing water companies to put, you know, human waste into rivers and and you know the, the terrible lax targets that they've implemented there allowing them to keep do, doing it from a lot of outflows until 2050 people are really really angry about that and i think that's across the political spectrum and across the age range so i think we should take some optimism from that but yeah well what a thought we don't want to be controlled by those people that you just mentioned ideally not no no uh, although they have interesting ideas of how to how to solve everything else, but yes. Okay, Simon, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating. I love talking to you because I rarely get the chance to talk to people who so immerse themselves in the possibilities of where we could go and are working to make it happen. I love your agency. So please do send us all of the links and names of constituencies in the UK that people could help. And if there are any groups around the world that are working towards this who want to send me details of that, I'll put it all in the show notes because this is a planet-wide concept that needs planet-wide action. So thank you for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast once again. Thank you so much, Manda. Always great to chat with you. And it's a planetary-wide emergency, isn't it? And, and I think that's, sure you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that more and more people are coming to get involved in this. And, and, I, and I think we're that that's our chance for prevailing here because right-minded people are getting involved and stepping up and realizing they can't sit out and be observers so yeah please get in touch with us out there anyone out there who wants to set up and run a primary and we'll do everything we can to support you and let's get these shysters out of power fantastic yay okay thank you
Well, there we go. That's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Simon for his thoughtfulness and diligence and the detail that he goes into and the sharp mind that he brings to all of this work. I have rarely met anyone as passionately involved who really gets that we do need total systemic change. I will put a list of the UK constituencies that the South Devon Primary Group considers to be vulnerable. If you're in any of them, please go out and do something to help make this kind of primary work happen. If we can elect actual human beings to the House of Commons instead of the party apparatchiks who usually get involved, we could begin to see change at a timescale that actually matters. And I really fear that if we don't see that kind of change in the timescale that matters, then we're in very serious trouble. So if we want this future that we'd be proud to leave to the generations that come after us, this is a thing you can do. Go out and get involved. And if there's not something in your constituency, there's a very strong chance there'll be something in somewhere that you can reach, where you can go and knock on doors and leaflet and talk to people and help people to understand that they do have agency and now is the time to use it. Have a read of the reports on Zero Hour. If you have the time and the interest, those two are well worth a look. And as ever, coming off industrial farming and industrial food systems is also really important and high on the agenda. So there we go. That is it for this week. We'll be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, huge thanks to Caro C for the music at the Head and Foot, to Alan Rolls of Airtight Studios for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tillery for wrestling with all of the tech and the websites, for making our YouTube and Instagram channels happen. And if you're on these social media, please go and subscribe. It does make a huge difference. Actually, subscribing anywhere makes an enormous difference. Really, if you're on Apple Podcasts, five stars and a review, we'd be very grateful. But really, as ever, word of mouth is what counts. If you know of anybody else that really wants to think about the things that matter in the climate and ecological emergency and how we can begin to address them, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. I sincerely hope my voice will be slightly less strained by this time next week. Take care, people. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.